Well, thank you, Judith, and good morning, everyone. Um, it's, it's great to be with you. It's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, as uh, Judith mentioned, um, we've come across from Preston this morning. Um, I'm serving as an assistant pastor in a church there, an evangelical church in the city center. Um, and I've come with Alice, my wife, um, and John, Lucy, and Henry. And uh, you'll, you'll, have, you'll be able to tell already that I haven't grown up in Bradford. Um, but my dad's side of the family all come from kind of Skipton, Pendle Hill way. So I always enjoy the, the drive over. It's very familiar. But we're really glad to be with you. Thank you for your welcome um, with us, uh, to us already uh, and your, uh, your generosity. We've been really encouraged. Uh, we are really encouraged by what the Lord is doing here at Sunbridge Road Mission and excited about his plans and purposes for the future. And it seems like there's a lot going on already. Um, hearing about the building project in the background this morning, uh, a, a, new, um, a search for a new pastor underway. I can see why you're in the book of Nehemiah. It's an obvious place to be, isn't it? Um, and it's a, it's a privilege to have a chance to look at it with you together. Um, we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, so if you uh, turn to that in your Bibles. Um, but before we come to God's word, let me pray. We need God's help, don't we, uh, to hear from him. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that your words bring life. And Lord, we praise you for the life they have already brought in our lives. And we long today, Lord God, not to hear my words, but to hear your words. And so we pray that you would speak to us from this chapter of your word. We, Lord, you know our hearts. You know what each of us needs to hear. Uh, give us hearts that are ready, ready to receive your word, to listen and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Nehemiah chapter 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain for them that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are brought into slavery already. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thoughts, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. 
And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who had been before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions." because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, politics is crazy at the moment, isn't it? We live in a country that is fighting against itself. Uh, Whatever you think about Brexit, most people would agree we're a divided country. Uh, We saw that in the original vote, didn't we, with a country split 53-47. We saw that last Thursday with the government yet again defeated in the House of Commons. And it's not just in the UK. Uh, We spent three years at Bible College in the US and witnessed the kind of growing division there around the election of Trump. You might have followed news there recently of government shutdowns and and the declaration of a state of emergency. Now, I don't want to get into an argument about Brexit or Trump's wall this morning. That'd be a bad place to start, wouldn't it? That's not my point. But but what's the issue that lies underneath both of those things? What's fueling the hostility and division that we see around us? Well, it's a sense of inequality and exploitation, isn't it? The widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. The growing concern that the establishment, whether that's the House of Commons or the BBC, no longer speaks for the people, but is some inner group looking out for themselves. They and their friends in London prosper, while the rest of the country pays the price. Now, that, that dynamic's nothing new, is it? You know, inequality and exploitation, they've long fueled division. And sadly, the community of God's people aren't exempt from that. So in Nehemiah 5, we see that same dynamic in danger of destroying the unity among God's people. Now, you've been looking at Nehemiah for a number of weeks now, so I imagine you're, you're kind of immersed in the story and what's going on. You know, God's people have come back from exile in Babylon, Actually, by the time Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, the Jews have been back nearly 100 years. So the temple's been rebuilt, but things have ground to a halt. And so a group comes back under Nehemiah's leadership to rebuild the city walls. It's a big project, but it's essential if God's people are to establish themselves in the land again. And as always with God's work, opposition comes, doesn't it? I'm sure you saw that last week. And chapters 4 and chapter 6 focus on on challenges that threaten to undermine the building of the city wall. Uh, So you you see opposition from men like Sanballat and Tobiah the Ammonite, who do all they can to stop God's people flourishing. And chapter 5 is about challenges, but not external challenges, but internal challenges, problems within the community of God's people. Uh, In Nehemiah 5, we see the threat to God's kingdom from inside the walls. And as we look at this chapter together, we'll see the problem, we'll see the solution, and we'll see an alternative. 
And we'll do well to listen up because sadly the problems that threaten to divide God's people in Nehemiah's day still threaten to divide us today. So we start then with the problem in verses 1 to 8. This is our first point this morning. Exploitation. Using power to serve ourselves. And the problem comes to our attention that very first verse. Look at verse 1 in chapter 5. There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. People are struggling. Times are hard. And pretty soon we realize why. Three factors have sort of combined to form a bit of a perfect storm. There's a famine. So food is scarce. Maybe the equivalent today of a kind of economic crash. One summer's poor harvest means that the average family is struggling. There's heavy taxes. You know, they might be back in the land, but they're paying Artaxerxes plenty of money for the privilege. And on top of, all of both of those things, that the men have spent the last few weeks working on the wall under Nehemiah's instruction, the equivalent of unpaid leave, while all of those other things are going on. So famine, taxes, wall building, well, they're, they're beginning to take their toll. And some of the people just cry out for food, don't they? They, they? they have mouths to feed, but no income to buy grain. Perhaps no land they can mortgage to raise money. Others are mortgaged up to the hilt, you know, land, vineyards, houses, they've got nothing left to leverage. And in the ancient world, if you lose your land, you lose any chance of climbing out of poverty. And others are, are, are one step deeper in. They've mortgaged everything and then taken out loans in order to pay their taxes. Things have got so bad, they've had to sell their children into debt slavery. And they've no hope of getting them back because they can't use their land. It's pretty desperate, isn't it? But the reason for the outcry, that the salt in the wounds, as it were, is that the people who've taken their children from them, that the people who've taken their land, are their own Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's one thing for Artaxerxes to take your money, isn't it? You kind of expect that. It's quite another thing for God's people to be driving you into the ground. See, some Jews have come back to Jerusalem with money and land and power. Nehemiah was one of them. So they've got the capital to give out loans. They don't feel the effect of the famine. And the outcry isn't just that they're kind of sitting pretty while God's people suffer, but some of them seem to be making money out of their plight. Uh, This is an outcry of exploitation among the community of God's people. And Nehemiah points out the tragic irony here. You know, on the one hand, they're doing everything they can to get their Jewish brethren out of slavery in Babylon. But on the other hand, at the very same time, they're buying and selling them amongst themselves back in Jerusalem. Now, I don't think the primary problem is that what people are doing here is illegal. You know, otherwise you'd expect Nehemiah to go to Deuteronomy, wouldn't you, and remind them of God's law. I think primarily it's a problem of self-interest. They might be okay on the letter of the law, but when it comes to the spirit of the law, they're way off the mark. It's the same problem you get in Haggai uh, decades earlier. You know, when people are busy building beautiful wood-paneled houses for themselves while the temple sits in ruin. The problem is a heart problem, isn't it? It's using resources for personal gain. They're busy sorting themselves out at the expense of their brothers. And maybe that shouldn't surprise us, that the human heart is deceitful above all things. It shouldn't surprise us that just as God's purposes are coming to pass, sin and self-interest threaten to undo it. We've seen it before, haven't we? Think of Moses on Mount Sinai. No sooner has Moses received God's precious law on the tablets of stone than he comes down the mountain to find God's people worshipping a golden calf. Or think of Joshua. 
The Jordan is crossed. Jericho is overcome. God's people are finally in the promised land. And then what happens? Achan keeps hold of the loot out of self-interest and threatens to undo the whole enterprise. Think of the early church. The Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. Thousands repent in response to Peter's sermon. And what follows in Acts 5 and Acts 6? The self-interest of Ananias and Sapphira. And then division between Greek and Hebrew Jews about how the vulnerable in the community are being treated. See, the threat to God's kingdom from within the walls hasn't gone away. And I wonder what you would see as the biggest threat to what God is doing through Sunbridge Road Mission. You know, maybe you'd point to the rising aggression of our secular society, which seems intent, doesn't it, on squeezing Orthodox Christianity out of the public square. You might feel that through the current redefinition of of gender and sexuality. Perhaps you'd point to Islam, to to the growing Muslim population, which seems to be expanding in this city far faster than the church. Maybe you feel that every time you drive past an old church building, which is now a mosque. We see the external threats, don't we? But sadly, we can often be blind to the internal threat. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that far more churches have been destroyed in this country through self-interest and exploitative leadership than through opposition from the outside. That's why there are two big accomplishments in Nehemiah, and both are needed. Yes, the walls need to be built, but what happens from chapter 8 onwards? Covenant renewal, the law is read out. People are called back to God and his ways. And I think this is particularly significant for Sunbridge Road Mission with this building project in the background. It's a great vision to use resources to serve others. But you mustn't put your hope in a building. It it won't automatically sort out all of the problems. We must keep building people, mustn't we? We must keep dealing with the threats inside the walls, the threat our self-interest poses to one another. Actually, we need to be continually called back to God and his ways. Because actually, it's that ultimately, isn't it, that will allow us to use a building for God and his glory, to serve others, rather than to serve ourselves. Now, exploitation has has always been a problem, sadly, within the church. And, And there are points in church history where it's been particularly crude. You know, think of the indulgences in Martin Luther's day. The Catholic Church sent people round... Uh, collecting money from the poor to build the kind of decadent and luxurious dome of St. Peter's. Uh, The poor gave their money under false spiritual promises in order to finance this kind of decadent building that would benefit the church leadership. And that exploitation, it was that in particular, wasn't it, that made Martin Luther cry out, enough. Or think of the health, wealth and prosperity pastors today, perhaps, whose followers are conned out of life savings in order to bankroll the pastor's private jets and extravagant lifestyle. Sometimes this is obvious, isn't it? But sometimes it's more subtle. Church leaders who are in it to make a name for themselves, motivated more by their ego than love for the people they serve. But it might be power that comes from resources, money or relationships within the church. The question is, what are you doing with the power that you have? Are you using it for personal gain? That's the way of the world, isn't it? Identity politics. We, we use our power to get our preferences, what we want, what our people want. You know, I'm on this committee, and I'm going to make sure I get what I want. But the powerless remain voiceless and exploited, just like in Nehemiah's day. And Nehemiah warns us that's a recipe for disaster. 
Using power to serve ourselves will rip a church community apart. So we need to watch the threat from inside the walls. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the happy start this morning. But, but this story does have a happy ending, wonderfully. Actually, under Nehemiah's wise leadership, that the threat of exploitation and self-interest is averted. So we come, secondly, to the solution in verses 9 to 13. This is our second point this morning, repentance based upon fear of the Lord. And there's a wonderful sequence uh, in these verses of ours. So we move from rebuke to repentance to restoration to rejoicing. From rebuke to repentance to restoration to rejoicing. And it starts with rebuke. And sometimes we need a rebuke, don't we? I took a, a gap year with Latin Link before university, and we were involved with an evangelical church in Lima in Peru. We were hosted by a wonderfully generous Christian lady called Damaris. And I remember one hot afternoon after we'd been doing a bit of building work, our team got embroiled in a water fight. And we thought it was great fun, tearing around the streets, chasing after each other with buckets of water, sort of slipping over, getting drenched. But halfway through, one of the leaders of the church came outside and called us over. You have to stop this at once, he said. Your foolish behavior is undermining the gospel witness of Damaris and her family in this neighborhood. Well, we needed that rebuke, didn't we? We'd forgotten why we were there, what it was all about. We weren't there to muck around. We were there to support and encourage the local church. And in Nehemiah 5, God's people need a rebuke. And Nehemiah doesn't shirk it. So look at verse 6. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Rebuke flows out of his anger at the situation. But that is no bad thing. What is it that allows the vulnerable to be exploited in plain sight? So often it's apathy, isn't it? Actually, anger at injustice is a healthy thing. But notice, this isn't rash. You know, this isn't kind of heat of the moment stuff from Nehemiah. He takes time to think about it properly. After serious thought, he realizes that actually a rebuke is necessary. And rebuke, though uncomfortable, is an important part of the leadership of God's people. It's necessary because all of us drift into sin. So actually, just to maintain godliness and faithfulness in the church takes active leadership and correction. But it's also necessary because the vulnerable need champions. Uh, in Preston, we've been looking at Proverbs together recently. Uh, and one of the Proverbs we'll be looking at tonight is 31.8, which says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Now, it can't have been easy, can it, for Nehemiah to challenge this group of powerful Jewish rulers. But he's probably one of very few people who could confront them on behalf of the vulnerable. So it's right, isn't it, that as leader... He uses his voice to speak up for those who are being exploited. And did you notice what his appeal is based on? You know, why should these nobles listen? Look at verse 9. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? It's fear of God that ought to motivate them. Now, to fear God is to relate rightly to our creator, our king, our judge to live in light of who he is and what he cares about. And actually, it's only fear of the Lord that's going to allow us to push back against self-interest and material gain and exploitation. It's only when God becomes our primary concern 
that will move away from the pattern of using power to serve ourselves. We see this in Nehemiah's example later. His servant leadership is fueled by his fear of God. It's not something he learned at business school. Well, wonderfully here, that the, the rulers and the nobles listen. They heed Nehemiah's words. Rebuke leads to repentance. And, and how do we know they've repented? Well, they change their ways. And that's what repentance is, isn't it? A change of direction. Of course, repentance starts in the heart. But it's always seen in actions. We mustn't kid ourselves that we've repented if nothing has changed. I think of John's words in 1 John 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. People's children have been sold into slavery because they can't pay off their debts. You can't deal with that situation with a few kind words or a card in the post. And we know they repented because they agreed to wipe the debts and restore their property. And it's those actions that bring restoration. See, Nehemiah realizes this danger is a real one. He doesn't do a bodge job here, does he? He doesn't kind of push it under the carpet or try and smooth things over. Actually, quite the opposite. He calls these leaders to go above and beyond, basically cancel the debts in order to restore trust and unity and hope among God's people. There are times, aren't there, when issues emerge within the community of God's people where we need to go above and beyond. That was the case again in Acts 6 with the early church. The apostles didn't dismiss the outcry, did they, of the widows? They set aside good men, men like Stephen, full of the Spirit, to ensure that unity and trust and hope was restored. And look at the results in verse 13. All the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Isn't that a wonderful outcome? You know, under Nehemiah's wise leadership, because of his willingness to, to rebuke uh, the leaders, a situation of grumbling and complaint has turned into a situation of rejoicing. Rebuke, repentance, restoration, rejoicing. Now, I guess that all of us want rejoicing and restoration, but often we don't want the hard work of repentance that comes first. Snowdon is the tallest mountain in Wales. Some of you might have climbed it. It's unusual because it's got a railway that goes almost to the summit. Now, as someone who enjoys mountains, I find that railway infuriating. You know, you've worked hard to climb up those scree slopes to enjoy the view at the top, only to be joined by a hundred school children who've just got off the train. But perhaps for some of us, that train sounds perfect. You know, all the joy of the view without the hard work slogging it up. And it can be like that, can't it, with difficult situations we're facing. We want rejoicing. We want restoration without the hard and painful work of rebuke and repentance. But among the community of God's people, there's no railway. The only way to restoration and rejoicing is the hard path of repentance. This is a passage about exploitation, about leaders using their power, their resources, to serve themselves rather than look after God's people. Now, when we hear a passage like this, it, it can be very easy for us to start pointing the finger. All kinds of people come to mind. You know, other leaders and their faults are in our sights, maybe ways in which we have been treated badly. But we need to be careful here, and I think start by taking a leaf out of Nehemiah's book, because there's one detail that we've skimmed over. Nehemiah included himself in the rebuke. Did you notice that in verse 10? 
I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Now, I'm sure that many were far guiltier than he was, but that's not the point, is it? Nehemiah acknowledges where he is part of the problem. And actually, that's a good place for us to start too. You know, remember Jesus' words to take the log out of our eye before we start fixing specks in others. And, and leadership's a big theme in Nehemiah. It, it might well be that actually over the last few weeks, as you've seen ne- Nehemiah's wise and godly leadership, you become aware of faults and issues in your own leadership. Perhaps even today, you've been convicted about ways you use resources and power to serve your own interests. And there might be a need for us to repent, perhaps even acknowledge our faults among those that we lead. Sadly, that's very rare today, isn't it, for leaders to acknowledge mistakes and faults. Leaders feel like they have to be flawless. That's true in the world, but it's also often true in the church. And I felt this challenge many times, um, the, the challenge of this passage, as I've prepared. You know, there have been many times where I've been convicted that my leadership has been more about myself, more about my reputation, more about my glory than about serving God's people. And that to my shame, so often I've shied away from that, not admitting it to others or doing anything about it. Well, the only path to the glorious view of restoration and rejoicing comes through the hard work of rebuke and repentance. And what's going to motivate us to push through that? Well, it's only the fear of God, isn't it? So we've seen the the problem. We've seen the solution in repentance based on fear of the Lord. And in the final section of this chapter, things change a bit. The feel of the passage changes. Nehemiah kind of pulls out of the story to reflect a bit more broadly on his leadership. And what we get in his example is an alternative, a better way to do things. Instead of exploitation, using power to serve ourselves, we get this wonderful model of servant leadership, using power to serve others. And that's our our third and final point, servant leadership, using power to serve others. And we see that in um, what Nehemiah gives up and also what he gives out. So look down to verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. Nehemiah is the official governor of Judah, appointed by Artaxerxes. And one of the rights he had as governor was, was this food allowance. Um, and, and he states, you know, that's been the norm in Judah. Uh, governors would tax the people. Uh, they collect provisions of food and wine. But in his 12 years, Nehemiah has never claimed that right. You know, why on earth not? Why not take the perks that go with the job? You know, we live in a culture where rights are everything, aren't they? We're encouraged to stand up for our rights. Why would Nehemiah give up this food allowance? It's because he hasn't come to Judah for the food. He hasn't come back to Judah because governor is the obvious next step on his career ladder. He doesn't want this position because of the salary and expenses package. Now, Nehemiah has come back to Judah to use the gifts God has given him to serve God's people. And he sees that claiming this food allowance would just add another heavy burden. He's come to ease their burden, not to add to it. His primary concern is not his rights, but what is right before God. So we see his servant leadership and what he gives up, but also what he gives out. So look at verse 17. Some serious feasting going on. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, beside those who came to us from the nations around us. 
See, giving up the food allowance didn't mean he gave up on generosity. Nehemiah is generous in his hospitality. Presumably, this is out of his own pocket. He's using his resources to bless others. He's using his power to serve. And again, did you see what motivates him there in verse 15? It's fear of God. The reason Nehemiah acts differently is because he cares about God and what he thinks more than anything else. God is bigger than the people in Jerusalem and what they think of him. God is bigger than the nobles and rulers. God is bigger than Artaxerxes. In fact, God is bigger than Nehemiah and his own preferences. Because servant leadership is very often unseen. I expect people might well not have known the personal sacrifice involved in his leadership. They may well not have known that, that he was bankrolling these feasts personally rather than feeding off taxes. With servant leadership, much is unseen. And actually, we will only persevere in that if our primary concern is God's opinion. So look at the very last verse of chapter 5. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it, servant leadership, as we see it here with Nehemiah. He's a wonderful example. And I'm sure each of us could kind of share examples where we have seen servant leadership beautifully modelled and lived out. The Apostle Paul's a good example, isn't he? He didn't ask those that he preached to for money. At the, these early churches that he formed, he didn't want to give any burden to the gospel. Um, so he spent his days making tents alongside his gospel ministry. He wasn't in it for what he could get out of it. One of my um, teachers at Bible school shared a story from his time um, as the senior pastor in a local church. At that stage, his children had left home and were now financially independent. Whereas the assistant pastor in the church had a number of young children and was struggling to make ends meet. And my teacher shared how he approached the elders and suggested that their salaries be switched. As so as the senior pastor, his salary was higher, but the assistant pastor was in a season of life where he had greater financial need. Do you see, it wasn't about his rights, was it? It was about how best he could use resources to serve the local church. And my sense is that you've had the privilege of sitting under servant leadership here at Sunbridge Road. Uh, Pastor Phil took us around the building, and um, I was struck at one point when we came to a large room full of empty bookshelves, and he explained that that had been his office, but that he'd moved out to make room for clothes to be stored for the Real Hope Ministry. Servant leadership is a beautiful thing, isn't it? And of course, the ultimate example isn't Nehemiah. It isn't any of those other things I've mentioned. The ultimate example of servant leadership is the Lord Jesus. So remember what he says in Mark chapter 10. You know, James and John in Mark chapter 10 come and ask their question, don't they? Lord, can we sit on your right and your left in your glory? They've fallen into self-interest, trying to use Jesus to get status for themselves. And Jesus has got no time for it, has he? You know, the world's model of leadership might be to lord it over others. But Jesus' definition of greatness is service. Remember what Jesus says in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes as God's appointed leader, God's king. He doesn't exploit the vulnerable. He comes alongside them. He uses his power to serve them. Think of some of the people that Jesus draws alongside in the Gospels. Lepers who've been ostracized from society. A man who was paralyzed, unable to walk since birth. The woman at the well with her long list of failed marriages. 
the demon-possessed man living in the tombs, a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, the little children who the disciples want to get rid of. Jesus uses his power to serve the vulnerable among God's people. And what's more, he uses his voice and his authority to speak on their behalf. You know, think of the hard words that Jesus reserved for the Jewish leaders who laid a heavy burden on the back of God's people but didn't lift a finger to help them. One of my favourite moments in the Gospels comes in Mark chapter 6. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are exhausted from their ministry. You know, they've been so rushed off their feet they haven't even had time to eat. They withdraw to a solitary place, a quiet place, to get a bit of rest. But when the boat lands, they're met by this huge crowd full of needs. And at that stage, Jesus doesn't focus on himself, though he had every right to. Instead, we're told, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus didn't choose a life full of luxury, did he? Or comfort or status. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And again, as as God's Son, Jesus had every right to riches and status, but he chose to give it up. He chose to use his power to serve others. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus doesn't hold on to his rights. He willingly gives everything for us. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus had every right as one equal with God to enjoy all the glory and privilege of heaven. But he chose to give it up, to make himself nothing, to come down into the mess of humanity and not just to become a man, but to walk ultimately to his death on a Roman cross. And it's the cross of Calvary that is the ultimate definition of servant leadership. Jesus gave up everything for us. He used his power, his moral perfection, his wisdom, his knowledge, not to gain riches and glory and splendor for himself, but to serve us, to die in our place, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be restored to relationship with the God who made us. Actually, servant leadership is the reason we're gathered here this morning, isn't it? It's the only reason we can come before the living God. The only reason we can call one another brother and sister is because Jesus chose to use his power to serve us. And it might well be that there are some people this morning who are not following Jesus. You haven't put your trust in his death on our behalf. We started this morning talking about exploitation, people using power to serve themselves. And perhaps you're fed up with that kind of leadership. You see it in politics, you see it in the workplace, maybe, most sadly, you've seen it in the church. You're fed up of being used and abused by others, of being a pawn in someone else's game. Well, Jesus is a different kind of leader. Sometimes people wrongly get the impression that that Jesus is a hard taskmaster who's going to spoil your fun and ruin your life and ask you to do more and more until you're driven into the ground. That couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus is the definition of a servant leader. He uses his power to serve others. And if you doubt that, then look at the cross. If we've already been used and abused by others, it can be hard to trust. We might have become cynical. But you need what Jesus has done for you. You can't do that for yourself. Will you let Jesus serve you through his death on the cross? As I'm sure many in this room would agree, there's no better leader to follow. And there's one other obvious application, isn't there, to make uh, for you as a church before we finish. Uh, This is the kind of leadership you should want as a church, servant leadership. 
leaders who aren't in it for themselves, uh, but, 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 uh, but use their power and their resources to serve, including the vulnerable among God's people who are so easily ignored. We began by thinking about Brexit and Trump. That seems a long time ago now. But the, the division we're experiencing politically between the have and the have-nots. And we've seen in Nehemiah 5 that sadly that same threat is a threat among God's people. It's easy, isn't it, with these things to become cynical, to think that actually everybody's ultimately just out for themselves and that nothing will ever change. I hope that Nehemiah 5 shows us the church doesn't have to descend into that. You know, the nobles and the rulers responded to Nehemiah's rebuke. They changed their ways. We follow a different model because we follow a different king. Servant leadership and the unity that it produces is worth fighting for. Not just for ourselves, but so that God's purposes might come to pass through us. Not ultimately the building of a city wall around Jerusalem, but the building of a people from every tribe and tongue and nation who give glory and praise to the servant king. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and kindness and goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise him for him. Lord, we see within our own hearts the tendency and the sin to use our power in self-interest. Lord, we, we, we feel that threat, uh, not only in our own hearts, but in the community of your people. Lord, we thank you for the repentance and restoration we see in Nehemiah 5. And Lord, we pray that in this, uh, we would continue to follow our Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for him and the model that he gives to us. We thank you ultimately for what he's done that we could never do for ourselves that he chose not to enjoy the glory he had every right to, but to lay it down and to step into the mess of our world and the, the pain and agony of a Roman cross, that we might know you. Lord, we pray that you would form us more and more in his image and likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. like to stand we're going to sing um, about Jesus and his servanthood so let's stand together use these words as a response to what you've heard
may God help us to do that that we've just sung. Um, if the prayer team would uh, like to come forward, um, that if there are people available who would love to pray with you about anything, perhaps something that struck you from this morning or any, anything that you would like prayer with, then do uh, come forward at the end of our service. So let's uh, just pray together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining with us. Do share uh, refreshments in our lounge afterwards.